Welcome to DevOps Accents, a podcast on everything around DevOps, public cloud, and cloud-native topics, with your hosts, Pablo, Leo, and Kirill. Hello, and welcome to another episode of DevOps Accent, a podcast where we, the co-founders of MKDev, get together to discuss all things around DevOps, cloud-native technologies, data, and artificial intelligence since recently. <laughs> uh, today, uh, it's just us, Kirill, and I. Hi, Kirill. Hello. How are you? Good. Enjoying winter in Munich. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it cold there? Uh, depends. Uh, on Saturday, it was minus 14. Now it's plus 5. So it jumps a lot from one to another. I can't imagine how it affects your roads like this t- today is one day is uh, plus above zero and the next day is <laughs> minus its I, I, I can imagine it's all freezing and ice everywhere. Is it the case? It makes life more adventurous because you never know what expects you the next day. <laughs> it's not like, like in my hometown when from November till March, you know, it's going to be cold and snow without uh, any variation or any big variations. And in Munich, it's always, you never know, it could be plus 20 in December. It could be minus 10 in March. Yeah, I can relate. Usually it's cold and sad (laughs) in hometown. Uh, Okay, uh, before we start, I'd like to make some announcement because there are some new articles and videos that we released this year and we start this year by discussing uh, how much you pay for for your cloud infrastructure in your company for yourselves whatever and we started with the first video of the year at the Pablo discusses data ingress fees what is that how you pay for that and if it's even I don't know if it's even scam <laughs> he, he even called the video the biggest cloud scam uh, go and watch it if you didn't see it uh, because we are going to discuss this with Kirill today and I think that the main topic of this podcast would be discussing cloud because uh, the, uh, another video uh, that we released this year just a few days ago is Kirill uh, suggesting five steps that you need to take to start with uh, your own infrastructure in terms of cost optimization, what you need to do, where to find these settings, and why do you need them, and how they work. Very informative videos and very like, straightforward. You just go do this and you will be good to go. And another topic is Kirill uh, published a very in-depth article on processing background jobs on AWS Lambda versus how it works as Fargate and everything else uh, in between. And we are going to discuss this as well uh, with Kirill. But as usual, if you don't want to miss anything that is published uh, is I mean in articles or in videos you always can go and subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter MKDev Dispatch everything we share everything we learn 
uh, we publish in this newsletter for you to not miss. And if you find it interesting, just uh, it will be available on your inbox every two weeks with everything that we released in between. Okay, uh, starting with um, Pablo's video, I watched it and it's kind of very entertaining and it's kind of eye-opener, right? Because what's going on in the cloud uh, like infrastructure in cloud area in terms of costs is sounds like um, kind of crazy, right? And when you look at this as Pablo described, it does look like a scam. And I was surprised to learn about this term, uh, like data egress fees. And I read a bunch of articles about it. And all the articles, when you read those, this sounds like uh, someone in the AWS or Google, Google, they just decided what else we can charge our users for. And just let's slap the price on this and we will charge for that. Like, if you want to leave us, give us money. It's like, there is a, a joke, uh, you pay a uh, dollar to enter, but you pay uh, $2 to leave. And it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of trap. Uh, why is this a thing, in your opinion? The first obvious reason is because big cloud companies, you want to make money. So if they can make more money, they will make more money. Uh, that's probably the the primary reason, right? There is no other reason why they charge money is because they want to make more money. But there is like uh, I can play the devil's advocate and think about why that's a reasonable way for for the customer. Even though, yeah, we need to keep in mind that the only the only reason is to make more money. I understand that. Yeah, everybody needs to make money. But when we pay for uh, web services, for I don't know, for internet. ICP provider, right? They they have their expenses. They pay for using uh, like cables that where the internet is running, right? And th they pay to someone someone else, and they charge us for the internet. And when I think about like that, a company, uh, AWS, for example, or whatever any other cloud provider, they use their own infrastructure to run our data. Do they really have some expenses that they spend while they are running our own data other than, uh, I don't know, maybe it sounds like amortization fee, like you used our uh, hard drives, our I don't know, process powers to run your data, and now you're leaving uh, be so kind to compensate us for for using this hardware, or maybe there's something else going on there. Because I, I don't I don't understand uh, I don't s see if that they are uh, charging this how do you it called data agrees fee just because because they can. If you like, uh, we are both old enough to remember that uh, it. It used to be the case that when you have uh, an internet, you have a fixed amount of data, right? And it's still the case for mobile data. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I remember it my, for my like first of my DSL connections, this would be like 100 or 200 gigs per month with particular speed. Now it's common that you just don't have any limitation. But even I remember in uh, one of my first contracts for internet in Germany, you would pay for a high-speed internet, but it would be like mobile. It, they would say you have 300 gigabytes per month. Afterwards, it's going to be um, re reduced to some uh, like a slow network connection like gRPC or whatever, the slowest one. Uh, and those contracts still exist. We just accepted uh, like the, the new normal is that there is no, you have unlimited uh, amount of data for cloud providers it's not only what you say like yes it's you pay for uh, for the data to leave the cloud but in case of aws it's more complex because you also pay uh, when the data goes from one aws region to another so if the if the data is is going from frankfurt data center of aws to ireland or paris or madrid or uh, milan there is a, there is a chart. Even within AWS. Uh, yes, and, and even worse. And, and that's one of the scummy part of this. Is the word scummy? Uh, is that you also pay for the data transfer between different availability zones in the same region. So if you look at Amazon region, it's not really a data center. It's it's multiple data centers within the same physical location. Uh, well, same physical region. And then the region in Amazon consists of multiple availability zones. And then actually one availability zone is the data center. So, so for example, Frankfurt the region in Amazon consists of three, three availability zones, which means there are basically three different data centers separated from each other in a way that if there's like a, an earthquake or a bomb, uh, then two other uh, data centers availability zones are not affected. And there is a charge for data transfer from one availability zone to another. And that's, for me personally, when I first learned about this, that was, uh, I was annoyed more than by the fact of egress charge from the region itself, because in this case, it's like, come on, it's 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 one region, because uh, it's, it's Frankfurt AWS. Why do I need to pay when uh, my application uh, gets data from you know, from another instance of my other application within the same region. Uh, but the reason the charge is, you know, you pay for infrastructure. So the, that's how infrastructure as a service works. That's how cloud works. You pay for uh, resources. So you pay for compute, you pay for memory, you pay for storage, and you also pay for the network bandwidth. Uh, so it's in, in these terms, uh, sounds like a scam, but in the end, it's just another part of the infra that you pay. And that's another part of the infrastructure cost-wise that you can optimize. And maybe that's like one of the reasons also Amazon makes it so clear because they could just say like, they could keep the prices for compute 20% higher and never mention uh, network bandwidth. But no, they separate the, this cost and then you can optimize different parts of this cost. Uh, for example, if your application uh, like accesses AWS S3 a lot, uh, you can actually make a request to S3 to go over private network inside Amazon, and then the price goes down because it does not leave the region to connect to like a S3 bucket in another region. And you can do many different things to optimize it. The bigger problem is when you want to leave the cloud, and that's what this Google announcement is about, about leaving Google Cloud, which I'm sure we'll talk about it in a bit. Because imagine you have you're using AWS as a huge enterprise or like you're using AWS as a music streaming service like Spotify. 
So you have all of these files stored inside AWS region of data center, and that's that's shitload of files, right? Because you have all the music in the world that's petabytes, because then you have also the analytics data, the database, not just the MP3 or whatever files. It's a lot. And now we decide, well, we don't like Amazon anymore. We'd like to migrate to our own data center, or we'd like to migrate to Google Cloud. And that's where this egress fee becomes kind of <laughs> the scam part, because yeah, now if you want to migrate to another cloud, you have to pay for petabytes of data of uh, leaving Amazon Cloud. And that's what this Google Cloud announcement is about, because they just said, you know, if you want to leave Google Cloud, it's for free. You don't pay for the egress data. Yeah, we can say it's it's good. It's good if you want to leave Google Cloud, uh, it, because you don't charge anymore. But as a Google Cloud customer, I would really think about why they made this decision, because could be because they're uh, super nice and they want to take care of their customers, even if they stop being their customers. Or could be there is something happening in Google Cloud that they decided to make it easier to leave Google Cloud, which is speculation about <laughs> But in the end, why? Because you need to think about Google is one of the most money-hungry companies out there, right? Because whatever does not generate lots of money for them, they just shut it down. Uh, and they can fire tens uh, of thousands of people just to meet the quarterly numbers. So in this case, they're just telling that that's for free. If you leave us, uh, it's suspicious. I'm still not sure if this uh, just an asshole design or there is an actual reason behind why you need to charge for uh, incoming data and outcoming data. Because uh, the only thing I can think about, and I'm getting back to my uh, internet provider example, right? When, for example, when you upload something to AWS or to the cloud, they, from a cloud provider perspective, they have to download something from you. So they download something from the internet, let's say that. And when you uh, withdraw your data, they need to upload it from their services back to you. And I remember back in um, ADSL era and early internet era, we they charge us differently for incoming traffic and for outcoming traffic. Probably this is the case. And probably, I don't know, maybe for uh, they, they really pay more for outcoming data for outcoming traffic and when uh, you need to download your own data they pay more for for internet providers i don't know and at the same time google announces <laughs> that all uh outcoming traffic now is free why apparently you are not paying for outcoming traffic or, or, or what? Or uh, everybody else does, and you didn't, or you they found some kind of solution for that. This is so confusing. Uh, sorry, I think about Spotify because Spotify is running on Google Cloud, so that's a lot of outgoing data right there that they were they Google, that Google was making lots of money on. So it's a bit strange that they would just say no. You don't need this money. And I just don't understand the difference. For example, when I listen to the music by using Spotify, right, uh, there is data that transfers from the cloud to my device. And what is the difference between when I download this data and when the 
their client decides to withdraw their data and, and download all the music back to or on-premise or to another cloud provider, I don't see the difference. And why you, you don't charge for one, but charge for another? Or do they always, I mean, they uh, Google Cloud or whatever cloud provider, do they charge the client whenever the user access the data? Because when we access the data, there is always like download process between my device and the cloud. It, it depends, but it's even per service, right? So it depends on which service you're using to make your application available is what you're paying for. As a rule of thumb on AWS, um, whichever coming is traffic is incoming to your application is free. So there is no like ingress charge, but whatever is leaving, uh, they charge you for. And you even said that it was kind of surprise for you when you first learned about it, the process. If it was a surprise even for you, I assume it was like an earlier years of, <laughs> of when you became a um, DevOps engineer. But anyway, if it was a surprise for you, I assume for many managers uh, in the companies, this might be a surprise. And I assume this is not very transparent how they're going to pay, when they're going to pay, and um, is, is there a way to predict in advance, given what you know about the client's infrastructure, how they manage their data, if it's, if it's impossible to predict in advance that they're going to pay this fee, when they will pay this fee, and uh, is it possible to design the infrastructure in a way to uh, you know, to mitigate this cost that discharges or to um, try to avoid this altogether. Right. So you cannot avoid this altogether because at some point you'll have to pay. Uh, but there are many things you can do to reduce discharge. As I said, for example, if your application uh, writes a lot of data to AWS S3, uh, by default it would kind of leave your infrastructure, meaning that there will be egress charge, and then go to AWS uh, S3 API. But you can make AWS S3 API available privately to you, and then and that's for free to, to enable this feature. And then all this traffic goes completely within AWS uh, network, and then it's free. So then you mitigated this part. That's one of the, let's say, like low-hanging fruits for uh, customers that use a lot of AWS S3 to store lots of data. You just make this S3 API available privately, and then traffic kind of goes over private network, and then you reduce the charge. There are also differences between, like, if you share files over AWS S3 directly or via the CDN, like CloudFront, then it's a different price. So you can say, okay, I have lots of, lots of, like, let's say you're an ebook store and you have lots of PDFs, and then it would be cheaper for you to serve them over a CDN like CloudFront and over AWS S3 directly. So you really need to take it case by case and you roughly can calculate those things because in the end, that's your data. So you, you know how much data you are sending. You probably cannot predict it exactly in terms of you don't know how much client traffic you get, but you can calculate like the cost of gigabyte for you. Uh, but, but it's still going to be a surprise for many people because in the end, 
there are many, many small charges depending on the use case that you need to know about. And the way you can control it is uh, one of the, like, the topic of my latest video about the first steps you can do to make costs visible to you. Uh, because there are many tools inside AWS that help you to see the cost and see the cost not one month later when everything already happened, but actually see the cost for a particular hour and for previous day. So I think that the latest data you can get is uh, is basically like 12 to 20 hours old in case of Amazon. So if, if I would check now our uh, MKDF costs, I would see how much we spent up till like maybe 6 p.m. yesterday, something like this. And the video shows what you can do about it. So it's not really cost optimization yet, but at least you make the costs transparent and you know where to look for uh, for the data. I saw the video. It's uh, quite insightful. Shows you uh, where to go, how to enable it, what to track. and uh, But even though it created, like, I have an impression that you need to be like a very skillful in this area. And this is not something that uh, a new user that just started using AWS services, or even uh, you might be kind of experienced in uh, setting up infrastructure. But when it comes to costs, like you need to be a wizard in order to be able to monitor this in this way as you describe it in the video because it kind of confusing like it, without a guide from your side if i just open this interface it's very confusing it's uh sometimes it's even misleading because there are so many uh links so many articles that describe why you need this. And, and if you don't know in advance how your infrastructure will work, you don't even, you can't even predict if you need to make this thing activated uh, before you launch your infrastructure and, and, the, um, and AWS will start charging you for that. Now, I have this idea that you need a separate person, like a kind of accountant or a bookkeeper who will uh, be sitting there uh, looking at the monitor and uh, clicking all these checkboxes to make sure that you do not pay too much and monitoring all the activity that happens. And one of the most interesting parts of, of your video is when you discuss about anomalies. Like there is a separate service that will detect anomalies and will send you a notification if something happens. And I was surprised this is not activated by default. Like you are running your infrastructure. You just start. You are releasing your application. And uh, after some time, you will release an update to this application. And with this update, your application will run differently. And maybe there is an error or a bug or something else, and it starts pulling, for example, too much data or running too much processes, I don't know, and the, your AWS bill just increased 10 times all of a sudden uh, in the middle of 
I don't know, midnight and you don't know about this and you only learn when you get your invoice in the end of the month. And in order to, pre to prevent this, as I understand that, you need to activate this anomaly de detection because this, this is kind of one of the ways to track if everything works as, as intended, as planned. But this feature is not activated by default. <laughs> you need to guide them uh, to this location and show uh, the clients how to activate it and how, what it does. There are no challenges that we couldn't overcome. Whether it is immediate infrastructure problems or planning a future project, we won't simply answer your questions. We become a part of your team to help you complete the mission. Our solutions consider the interests of your business and the combined expertise of the industry as our staff is made up of more than a dozen experts in different areas who share decades of field-tested experience and knowledge with you. So probably my question is, is there, like from your uh, perspective, from your point of view as a long-term uh, DevOps engineer, the guy who works with that, are there people in the companies who, whose job is to track these expenses and who the guy who does this? Because it looks like this is something that you need to do daily. First of all, right. Yeah, Amazon does not make it easy for you because uh, as you saw in the video, it's, I understand anomaly detection in some way because it's part of observability. So it's kind of a, an advanced feature. For me, the crazy thing is always that cost explorer, this tool that lets you visualize your costs is not activated by default. And the way you activate it is that you go to this billing, uh, billing part of the AWS management console and you click on cost explorer and then it says, huh, okay, I'll activate it. Come back in 24 hours. It's like, <laughs> how is this not a default? And then you go to Cost Optimization Hub, which is free, right? So Cost Explorer and, the, the, uh, and all of these things that I showed, they are free or they cost very little. Cost Optimization Hub, this place which tells you how to optimize your costs, is not enabled by default as well. You need to know that it exists and you need to go and activate it. So that's a bit, uh, that's AWS interfaces. That's how they approach things. Uh, you probably never heard anyone saying that Amazon or AWS is extremely good at interfaces, <laughs> uh, and that's for reason. Uh, you you hear it about Apple, but you never hear it about uh, AWS, and you never hear it about uh, Google, for example. Google, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even though, uh, after my recent experience with Azure, I think AWS is actually pretty great in terms of UI. There is always something more <laughs> horrible. But come back to a question about cost. It's uh, on the last re-invent, uh, 2023, so this biggest event with all the announcements, there was a keynote from CTO of Amazon, not of AWS, but of Amazon, uh, Werner, uh, Werner Fögels. And he released like a mini uh, ebook. Uh, it's available for free. It's called The Frugal Architect. And it kind of has the eight laws of how you design systems in the cloud or in general any system. And the law number one says, make cost a non-functional requirement. And it sounds like, when designing, developing, and operating systems, consider cost implications early early and continuously in order to balance features, time to market, and efficiency. And then, actually, all of the laws are cost-related. And that's why there is no, there is usually no like dedicated person taking care of AWS costs, because cost is part of the job. So the way you design 
systems on Amazon is by taking costs into an account because everything you do, uh, uh, the way you use all the services has direct implication on the cost. Uh, some, like one of the earliest issues of uh, our newsletter, um, uh, MKDF Dispatch, uh, I was talking about RDS Aurora uh, database. So that's basically SQL database, like MySQL, PostgreSQL. There's a serverless version of this. And one of the things they charge you for is for the number of write operations uh, and number of read operations. And that's basically even any of your database queries has a direct implication on, on the costs. So you have to design the way you make requests to the database also in a way that it's basically does not create too much cost. Uh, and while designing your queries to not generate a huge cost, these queries usually end up being way better than they used to be. I had a customer, which basically they were paying outrageous amount just for this particular uh, cost of the of the database. So the, the cost of compute was not that high, but the cost for this input write operations was huge. And it ended up being the problem with the data structure and the queries. So once the data structure was optimized, it was easy to cut lots of lots of unused data, the queries became like they were 10 times faster and the cost went down significantly like 60%. And that's how you always need to think about the cost in the cloud, at least in AWS. I'm not sure how it's because like we need uh, Pablo to clarify that the Google part, but I imagine it's the same, is that when you use the cloud, cost is just the same metric or almost the same importance as the like latency and performance in general and things like this. So uh, you, you are saying that uh, when it comes to cost, the person who is responsible for that is the same person who is setting everything up, basically the engineers right. and the architects. And it's not like uh, that you have a task to uh, design um, infrastructure that will be uh, reliable in terms of uh, performance, security. And whenever you take another step, it always translates into cost changes. And you have to, like, but again, before you take some step or you create a design, like, even in your head, you need to have, like, a budget for example, right, uh, that the company is should be like ready to spend on supporting the infrastructure and a certain amount of money. And where this budget comes from, because be, uh, is it is it even possible to predict how much it will cost before you start designing it? Or, or how how the process looks like? You 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 create the design, a rough design, like or, or a draft, and assume that th this will cost you like uh, this amount per month, per minute, per operation, or whatever. And then you uh, present the company like this draft, and you you just unknown them that the infrastructure that you need will cost you a fortune, and say, oh yeah, okay, all right, let's do this. And you start optimizing from this point, or it's like a, a different approach, or you need to optimize and to mitigate, to reduce the cost from the start, from the scratch, because I assume you can um, go way beyond <laughs> budget at some point. 
because of uh, unpredicted f- features. Yeah, I guess it depends a lot on the company, but usually the serializations that uh, the way you design your applications and cloud infrastructure has such a direct link to cost, which comes way after you started your infrastructure. Uh, and then the way it usually evolves, it depends on what kind of company you are. If you're a startup and you just started, you know, like you develop a new product, what happens quite often is that AWS has a startup support program and they give, uh, I don't remember how much, but then it depends on how lucky you are. And, uh, but I think by default, it's like 5,000 uh, bucks of, of free credit. So then... Uh, you deploy your application for the first time in production. You don't pay anything because you have this credit. And then in one year, you figure out how much all of this costs. And that's where you optimize because you see, oh, well, now we actually need to pay like 2K per month. Then for some companies, like especially huge enterprises, huge enterprises that are not originally are uh, technology companies like banks, Historically, now not, because now I think it's uh, there is a better link between bank equals uh, fin, uh, technology company. But before the bank would say, well, we will start our digitalization journey. So we'll hire some people, organize some teams, and we will start running some stuff in the cloud. And quite often for them, it there is no fixed budget for the cloud part. It's basically... Yeah, just spend whatever. We are not interested in optimizing the cloud bill right now. We have different priorities. And that's kind of an attitude that is very common in big companies because they're like, well, you know, we sell, imagine we're talking about some car maker and they're selling, uh, let's say, Porsche. Uh, one car costs how much? Like 100 uh, plus K. And they start a, like a website where you can order a Porsche. So for them, it's a completely different discussion about how much this website will cost. If it costs like 1K per month or 10K per month, it doesn't matter because in the end, the value of this website is that they sell Porsche. So if they sell like one car per month, it doesn't matter how much was spent on the cloud infrastructure for this. And they sell more than one car per month. It matters a lot if you are, if how much you spend on infrastructure is directly related to uh, how much money you make from each customer. So software as a service. Uh, and then uh, ideally you would not charge users less than what it costs for you to like handle all of the data and the loads they generate. And then you have to do the math for sure. You have to calculate like how much one user costs. And the way you can do it uh, in advance is the simplest case. You just go to pricing.aws, which is an official calculate from AWS. And then you can basically generate cost prediction for all the services you plan to use. You just say, well, I expect to store like one terabyte of data. I want to run load balancer with whatever three containers and the database and I expect this load. And then you have a rough estimate, which is a good starting point. But in general, cloud costs, they're also not so, uh, you know, you probably have to budget for them, but it's also hard to budget for them because they are so uh, unfixed, right? They change all the time, ideally, they're elastic. So at night you might be paying not a lot and then during the day a lot. And then it could be that in one particular month you have some big event that's just five excess you load and then you pay 50 times more for this particular day. So then you can budget it based on the historical usage probably, uh, but it's harder than when you budget for some on-premise where you say like for the next quarter we order five new servers. 
budgeting done. With cloud, doesn't work this way because it's elastic. And then your marketing team created some com- campaign that gone viral, and you suddenly have a lot of uh, clients, visitors, I don't know, visitors that generate clicks or something, and you suddenly have a bigger infrastructure <laughs> invoice that was not calculated towards marketing budget <laughs> and was, wasn't t- uh, t- taken into account when this marketing campaign was planned. Uh, and my question is, uh, is this knowledge, like, is this a common knowledge? Because the way you describe it, it's like creates an impression that every decent DevOps engineer should know this and should operate as accountant for the company when it comes to infrastructure costs uh, and click all these checkboxes and uh, be efficient with these uh, ugly interfaces. But uh, cost audit service exists for a reason. And I assume like a lot of people, they... As, as you described before, like they they start startup, they receive this uh, bonus from a cloud provider for, for them to start the the application, and they optimize as they go without getting too much into details. Uh, I assume this is how this is how it works. And if if this is so, then not many people. Uh, in reality, uh, do understand how much they pay and how much they can optimize and reduce the cost, because otherwise that wouldn't be a problem and the cost optimization services wouldn't exist. Like, I, I, I mean, if it's really that that common knowledge as you try to picture, yeah, I, I don't think it's a common knowledge. Uh, I think. Bootstrapped companies understand it better because they actually pay for everything from their own pocket. Startups who are like uh, have lots of VC money for them, it's imagine you got like 200 million of Series A, and then your only purpose for the next three years is to grow. Uh, then I can imagine that some of these companies can argue that a bigger AWS bill every month is good mm-hmm. <laughs> because you because you grow. Because it means whatever you, you got more users, but at some point, uh, as we know from last two years, it, it so happens that just growing and burning money uh, is not enough anymore. And then companies realize, uh, well, probably we should also look into optimizing costs, including cloud costs. Uh, and then they look at AWS bill, and then it's like, uh, what the fuck? <laughs> Where do we even start? If you open AWS bill for any mid-sized company, there are maybe like over a hundred of line items there with lots of lots of numbers that you need to kind of go through. <laughs> yeah, and, and then there is uh, that hidden cost that you cannot like predict or calculate or measure uh, in a meaningful way. And you dedicated a whole article to that about 
background jobs and you have to pay for those. And uh, I try to read this article. Like it's huge, it's insightful, but I had to use uh, ChatGPT <laughs> to explain it to me in, 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 in more like like I'm five. I explained it to me <laughs> what this article is about. The way how I understand this is like. For example, if I have a TV or a microwave in a standby mode, uh, or not just on standby mode, uh, it's it's it still consumes some power. And if I have like my laptop on, uh, it's have a number of background processes that just keep my uh, operational system up and running. Uh, and it consumes uh, an energy, consumes data or whatever, even even when I do not use this application. This is how I understand these big background jobs, background agents, or whatever you call them. But uh, the question is: Is it something that every service and every like SaaS product or every anything that uses cloud uh, have? Like, do they all have this and do they all have to uh, have this in mind that there is something small that always consumes energy and always consumes money? I rarely encounter an application that doesn't have some kind of background jobs. And the, the way to think about it, imagine if you go to the website, uh, you want to see the website immediately. Uh, but then as a website owner, I might want to get some, uh, data about you. Like I, I need to know like from which country you open the website. So if I would not have background jobs, the way it should work like that you open the website and then somewhere in my application backend, I am like taking your request and then analyzing and like checking your IP address and making some call to some IP database to understand from which country you are. And all of this takes time. Uh, and if there would be no background job to do this, you as a website visitor would be waiting for this to happen. Um, and then background job is basically, you open the website, uh, our application just says, well, just analyze this request, but like, later in the background. And then there is another software that processes this task and then looks at your IP address, et cetera, et cetera. But you, as a client, you just get the instant page, uh, page load. Oh, I see. And that's... Yeah, again, uh, I, I cannot think about that many applications that don't have it, like real apps, like software as a service, etc. So basically, everyone have it, and everyone have to pay. Uh, yeah, you have you have to process some background jobs. You can do it in many ways. You can also because that depends also how you do background jobs processing. Because the way I describe it in the article is basically production ready. How you can do lots of lots of jobs without losing those jobs and tracking them. But you could also say. Well, just process background job like in a separate like computer process in the same server, and let's just hope it nothing will happen to it. So you just kind of yeah like this poor man's background jobs, which is often used in development environments, but in production uh, not. But more or less depending on the use case, you have like video encoding. Like when you upload the file to YouTube, there is some background job processing this file. Okay, now it makes uh, much more sense to me. Uh, but uh, while reading the article, like I had an impression that this whole article is about you trying to save 
uh, 11 bucks per month for MKDev. And I, <laughs> I kind of feel like you spend more money trying to do that. Um, and like you, you invested, you have to invest uh, first. You have to invest time into tracking these uh, expenses. You have to invest time into uh, checking some checkboxes and doing something in order to re reduce the cost. And you spend, I assume you spend hours doing this and you spend another hours into writing this article. Is it worth the fuss? <laughs> like, and, and for, for larger companies, when it comes to because uh, for MKDev, it's it's uh, we have a tiny infrastructure compared to larger companies. Uh, do they even need to do this in order to save eleven bucks per month? Or when it comes to background jobs, they spend way more than MKDev spends. And like, I mean, what I'm trying to say, uh, uh, is there a lot of sense for a larger company to track these tiny expenses rather than focusing on something that is uh, more expensive or bigger in cost? Or is these smaller expenses, expenses is something that usually costs them the most? And they usually slip out of your field of view. Uh, like, like, I mean, those small expenses are the most important. I mean, if you ask if it makes sense, if it made sense to invest, it was like I spent more time writing an article than actually rolling out this change for us, for sure, because like I already knew how to do this change, which was like applying this. <laughs> It's 11 bucks per month. And then we have one more application where we're going to do this. And it's like 21 bucks per month. And, you know, we could buy some, I don't know, like, uh, I, I could buy one coffee per week for this money, eventually. But for sure, financially. Or a hoodie. <laughs> or, or a hoodie or like, uh, or a scarf. <laughs> and for us, uh, frankly speaking, it, it, it doesn't even make sense to run mkdev.me on the way we run it in the cloud. Uh, if if we would not be a DevOps a cloud native consultancy, I'd just use WordPress. Uh, not like WordPress on some server, I would just pay WordPress.com or Ghost or whichever else. Uh, uh, we are doing it, and <laughs> I, I don't know how this phrase in my head <laughs> because it's iconic, <laughs> and we like to do iconic shit. Uh, because it's it's a good playground for us to verify stuff because I cannot write such an article based on the customer data, right? Because the customer projects are customer projects, they're covered by NDA. But at the same time, I want to offer some good examples. And maybe 11 bucks doesn't sound like a lot, but the principle, the concept is everything the same, even if you have 1,000 more jobs. In the article at the start, there is a, there is a tweet uh, from from some guy who basically switched from AWS Lambda to EC2, and you can see how the costs like went down two times, and that was thousands uh, per day per month. Uh, it was a quite a big optimization. So these things add up, and in terms of background jobs, it basically works regardless if it's something small like MKDev with a few thousand jobs per day, or if it's a huge company with lots of lots of jobs. The calcula calculations you have to do are the same. And 
based on these calculations, you should pick the right the right tool for this job. And the, the way I like to see about it, uh, maybe it was a good thing to include in the article, is uh, imagine that we don't have a car with my wife because car costs money every month, uh, like fixed costs. But we use lots of car sharing and we rent uh, cars a lot in the trips and to like uh, travel to nearby countries here. And when you do the math of how much you spend on car sharing and, and rental, it's certain like amount of money because then I rent there for one hour and then I rent for three days. And then I always compare, does it actually make sense for us now to lease a car or buy a car? What should be the monthly cost uh, for owning a car and then using car sharing? And at some point, for sure, it would make more sense to, to own a car. And that's the same with this background job. So let's say AWS Lambda is like using car sharing all the time. Uh, it's more expensive per hour if you would own it, but if you use the car only 10 hours per month, it makes no sense to pay for like for your own car. And that's essentially the difference between uh, running background jobs with Lambda and ECS. For those who listen to us and from manager's perspective, I, I always try to put this into perspective. Uh, getting back to your article and getting back to the example that you provided of the guy that tweeted that uh, after they switched from Lambda to uh, ES2, uh, their cost dropped drastically. And But again, given that this is not a common knowledge that we discussed before, is there a way for... Uh, DevOps engineers in the company or their managers, engineering managers, like to know this in advance and to design their infrastructure so that it use ES2 from, from the start rather than relying on Lambda or other similar services. I mean, I think that if for ES, it would be like a good marketing I don't know, strategy or a campaign for them to promote these the services for these background jobs or I don't know, like how to how to invite people to use it because they, you, you will be able to uh, save a lot of money. And uh, I mean, like how, how do you learn about such things? What do you need to do in order to like to educate yourself to be able to make such decisions that cost your company a lot of money i mean obviously subscribe to our newsletter to learn about <laughs> naturally <laughs> like uh, no <laughs> there was an article about this just now uh but it, it's again part of the job i mean how did you learn about it i i can assume that you take you took some some time experimenting or you just uh, discovered someone's article, someone's book who did that, and you decide, oh yeah, I should try this too for for this client or for ourselves and see what what happened. Because I I I can imagine every infrastructure is a different, every setup is different, and you cannot calculate this in your head uh, when you look at the infrastructure. You have to implement something and uh, and see the result. Well, the way I learn it, obviously, like because I, I follow what's happening in AWS, that's uh, uh, part of my job to know what's there available. Uh, but it's 
there are basically some services that allow you to run software on AWS uh, in a generic way, uh, like Lambda being one of them, ECS, uh, EC2, uh, Kubernetes. And then each of them works in a different way, also in terms of pricing. Uh, but it's hard to know in advance how much it will cost you. But you need to be aware that in case of if you take AWS Lambda, it will cost you zero when you start. Just like it will cost you nothing. And you need to know that if you take ECS and you want to expose application to the internet, you have to have a load balancer, then all of these costs add up. And that's for sure not common knowledge. You just need to yeah know how to use AWS and learn how the platform works and what platform offers. Uh, luckily, in case of actually running software, there are not too many options on Amazon compared to, let's say, data-related services. So maybe if to run your applications, there are like yeah. around 20 ways on Amazon. And to do something with data, there are around 100 ways right now on AWS. Uh, there was a, a joke in one of our videos about how many ways are out there to do something with data. Yeah, I, I recommend like for small setups, uh, well, first of all, I don't recommend to use AWS in the first place or any cloud provider. <laughs> uh, if you just want to run some small, uh, uh, like, you know, a hobby project or software as a service, like don't use Amazon from the first day. It just adds unnecessary complexity, like use Heroku or use uh, whichever other more modern platform or the services out there because you will just spend uh, lots of time on, on, on all of those things that we're just discussing. Uh, you need to get to the point where you need something like AWS. Uh, it's easier to just uh, yeah, sp- use existing uh, platforms as service solutions instead. I try my best to make it look uh, like uh, it's easy to understand and there are ways to uh, get your head around this. Uh, but the more the, the, <laughs> the more I learn, <laughs> the more complex and complicated uh, this um, topic looks to me. Uh, but again, uh, for those who listen to us, I really, really recommend to go down to watch the video that uh, Kirill created about those five steps, uh, how to reduce the costs uh, of, of your AWS and to read this article. And on top of that, yeah, we have our own cost optimization services. If you would like to discuss this with us, just uh, give us a call and we will help you to uh, go through the steps, uh, how to how to mitigate, the co- how to reduce the costs and how to predict. Because this, what, what scares me the most uh, uh, when the Kirill uh, repeated multiple times, it's hard to predict <laughs> how much it will cost when you start. And th- this is scary. This is scary for any manager, for any company. And you need to uh, take a lot of uh, attention to this. So anyway, give us a call. <laughs> we will discuss your cost with you. And if you learn something new today, uh, Give us a like, uh, share this episode with your colleagues and uh, send us your questions by uh, replying to MKDF dispatch emails that you have on your inbox. And we will include this into our articles, into our 
podcast episode. We will discuss it with you in this format. Anyway, Kirill, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for sharing this information with us. It was very insightful, very helpful. And thank you for everyone who listens to us for tuning in. And don't forget to tune in for the next episode in two weeks. See you. Adios. Do you think your project infrastructure is well set and maintained? We know for sure there is always room for improvement. If you are uncertain where to begin, let's first do an audit of what you already have. We will review your setup from every angle, performance, cost, security, high availability, and automation, and provide you with a detailed roadmap of which direction your infrastructure should go, generate concrete tasks for you to implement, or even take on your infra entirely, if you let us, of course.